From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Man, there was stuff I did not even remember. I didn't even want to remember. And Andrew Gold is such a good interviewer. He brought it all back. I told stuff I'd never really spoke about before. It made me really think about my life and whether I'm even happy. I mean, I I think I'm happy. I think I enjoy my life, but I've really taken on more stress a lot of times than I've needed to. Anyway, here's Andrew Gold, journalist extraordinaire. He's been on this podcast before talking about some of his amazing experiences. And we turned the tables and he interviewed me about some of my experiences. So here's Andrew talking to me. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today's guest is one of the big names in the failure industry. Obviously, that's not a real thing. But James Altucher is simply one of the most fascinating people I've ever spoken to. So I had to get him on the show. He made millions selling his website company and then blew it all over the next couple of years. Down on his luck, he noticed that nobody who was there for him on the way up was there for him on the way down. He started writing 10 ideas a day, whether creative, financial, personal, whatever, on a notepad. And he'll talk about how that, along with emails of ideas or full of ideas for others, got him back on his feet. He's since made and lost millions over and over again. He seems to do it on a daily basis. He recently made worldwide headlines after writing a negative essay about New York, Uh, after COVID, believing that it won't recover. It was read out by the likes of Joe Rogan, but also New York native Jerry Seinfeld, who called James a putz, which is Yiddish for idiot. James certainly isn't an idiot. He's a chess master for one. And he now has a website called notepd.com, where other users are encouraged to come together and write their 10 ideas. It's everyone sharing ideas and growing as a community. It's it's how humanity should be, and I love it. I was recently a guest on his podcast, so do check that out. He has a great podcast, The James Altucher Show. Go check it out if you like what he has to say. Let him know you came to him from here. I'm sure he'd love to know that. But now you're on the edge of failing and succeeding and failing and succeeding with James Altucher. freezing man i'm just I'm, I, my fingers get so cold and i can't move them and I, I, how are you supposed to type if you've got cold fingers don't you have um there's a new invention called heat <laughs> 
Like there's heaters <laughs> in houses. Yeah, but you don't you don't know how much it's costing over here, man. It's, it's crazy. The England's gone. It's finished. They've completely cut off oil from England, and meanwhile, I bet you England is the next Saudi Arabia because the and this is not really for interesting for podcast listeners, but the North Sea around England is got has billions of barrels of oil underground and they're starting to let people drill there <laughs> that is interesting everything you say right you're known for being someone everything you say is is interesting is that like a lot to live up to i'm just saying hello i'm showing you my mittens that have got heating in them and you're going the north seas where there's oil and also the falklands presumably as well but that would start a new war wouldn't it that could be yeah we wouldn't want that again but you know but the problem is argentina is so just corrupt and decrepit that there's no way you now's the time for like, there's not uh, the Peronist standard, whether, the, whether you like Peron or not, like he, th- that party was going to fight for the Falklands. Now there's no one left in Argentina to fight for the Falklands. So the UK could just scoop it up, but it's really not the UK style. Well, it's still got uh, Christina Kirchner. She's still like, she was the president for a long time. Now she's like the assistant president. She was almost shot the other day. Do you see that? No, I didn't see it. There was an assassination attempt and the gun didn't go off right in her face. Someone put a gun right in her face when she got out of a car. Yeah, but she's, I think she's, oh, I don't, you know what, I was going to say controversial things about her, but I lived in Argentina for several years and they can be very uh, upset if you if you are not nice about, because she's a populist person, so she could well go f- for the Falklands if, if we were to, we by Britain went, went to get all the oil and stuff. That could be, just. A, but you know, Argentina is always the first place that could potentially switch from you know, pesos to crypto because there's, there's, you know, there's the, uh, the black market, then there's the blue market, then there's the regular currency market. Like the, their currency is completely messed up. And every time they ban Bitcoin transactions, the day after that is the largest amount of Bitcoin transactions from Argentina in history. So like people just don't follow the law there. And I've, I've been to Argentina quite a bit as well. And it's just kind of a mess there compared to other developing countries. Yeah, I think they would admit that as well. My editor, who is also my fiance, she's Argentine, so she'll be intrigued to hear some Argentine uh, comments so far. My, my 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 ex-wife was Argentinian actually, and it was it was crazy. Like we would go there, and by the end of a trip, like something would have happened. Like one time, her father was held up at gunpoint, tied up in his house, took days for him for people to find them. So we stayed like an extra day or two. Like this is just like a random thing that happens when we visit. Oh my God. I want to introduce you to, to On The Edge with Andrew Gold listeners. Um, I want to hear your story. So we're go, go, I, I, you know, I've been, I went on your podcast recently. That was loads of fun. And then I've been looking all into your stuff. My cousin is a huge fan of yours. She listens to you, Michelle, Michelle Slade and Rob Dix. And they, they wanted, oh, what did they want to say actually before that? That to say thank you, because you wrote a blog post in 2012 about self-publishing and it's what got them into it in the first place. They've now self-published 10 books between them, mainly about property and the economy and the income from book sales alone would be enough to fund our lifestyle. So there's a thank you from my cousin. Yeah, and you know, that's a great example of, there's a lot of things out there that institutional, you know, corpocracy doesn't tell you. Like, oh, you think you need to be selected by an agent and published by a big publisher in order to make money. No, I've never made a dime on any of my traditionally published books. And I've done about half and half, but my self-published books have created so much money and opportunity for me, it's ridiculous. And then there are people out there who have what I call Kindle businesses. They publish like a hundred books and are able to make a decent income stream from that. 
it is amazing what's going on. There's so much different stuff going on. But you sort of went on this journey of of finding out about all different kinds of things after hitting a low. And I've read you've you've described it as you you couldn't take the BS anymore. What was going on in your life? It was I, I believe it was around the time you sold Reset Inc. Was that was that what that was about? Yeah. So that was a company where I I didn't know anything about business. I was working at HBO, which was a television network in the U.S. and and a really high quality one. Like I really loved the company and I love working there and I love the product they produce. So my dream was to make a TV show. And, but I also, this is the, this is the mid nineties. I'm a little older and, and nobody in New York city knew how to make a website. There were maybe five people who knew how to make a website. This is 1994, 1995, 1996. And so suddenly companies realized, oh, maybe we do need to make a website. So like American express would call their accounting firm, Arthur Anderson at the time. And hey, do you know how to make a website? Arthur Anderson would call a big ad agency. Hey, do you know how to make a website? Uh, the ad agency would call some digital consulting firm. They don't know how to, they would call me and I would say, yeah, I know how to make one. And uh, then the next, I had never had a dime of money in my life. Like I was dead broke. I was living paycheck to paycheck or or less. And suddenly American Express wants to hand over $250,000 to make their very first website. So I made their website and I built a company up from that. Like I made every website and we did pretty well, but I didn't know anything at all about business. Like I really just failed at, at common basic concepts so many times, but we sold the business and I made some money and then I lost everything. And I like, I'm not saying I lost it because like stock went down. I cashed out. I saw the money in my bank account. It was like over $15 million cash in my bank account. And I literally lost all of it in about a two-year period. What were you doing? Spending on different business endeavors? A little bit spending on business. I, I spent nothing on myself. Like I, I have nothing that I want. And, but I, was, but I, thought, I, I thought I needed more. Like you, the thing about money is it, brings, it magnifies whatever's already inside of you. So I you know, and this almost sounds like cliche, like, oh, I was missing something in my life and money was filling it. And so I thought I needed more and more and more. And so when you need, when you need more, you take bigger risks. And so I was putting the money back into stocks that I had just cashed out of. And then the internet market imploded and I went broke. And that was only the first time I went broke. I really didn't know I didn't understand about business or investing, but the problem is when you have some success, you think you're like a genius and everybody tells you you're a genius. And then you get a combination of shame and fear and you don't, you take too many risks and you just lose everything. It's funny though, because I guess there are different kinds of people as well. Cause I know what you're saying, like you've got money, you want more. And if I had that kind of money, I think I'd be really like protective of it. Like keep all that money. Don't do anything with it. God, no, maybe one pound of it can go out per day, but it's, maybe are you more impulsive? Is that what it might be? I think I'm more impulsive. And I think, and you know, by the way, I've, I've gotten, this happened to me more than once. This happened to me at least three times where I've then built a bit, like I was broke, and and then I built another business and then I sold it and then I lost everything. And each time is worse because you're getting older. So you think it's too late and you're like, what the heck is wrong with me that I keep doing this? And you think it's like a permanent genetic disorder or something. And, and also once you, once you taste, you know, heaven, 
it's hard to go back to hell. <laughs> and I'm not yeah. comparing, you know, money status with religious status, but that's what it felt like to me at the time. And my my business partners at the time, because they weren't the ones actively, like in that first business, they weren't the ones actively managing the business or managing the deal that sold the business. So they knew that they weren't good at money. So consequently, they did the smart thing, which is like, oh, we're never going to make this again. Let's save it. And they still live off of it. So uh, I was the stupid one because I thought I was smart. Never think you're smart is the lesson. <laughs> was, the, was the heaven or the, the almost religious thrill, was that the making the money, not having the money, I suppose? Because also you're a minimalist, aren't you? No, having the money. Having the money was the, was the thrill. Because making the money <laughs> is, is, is horrible. Like, running a, like some people love running a business, I hate every piece of running a business. Like it is the most unpleasant thing in the world. And uh, once you have it, it's like, oh man, I worked hard and I finally got paid. I mean, you're working 27 hours a day you're, and the buck stops here. So if we didn't get, if we didn't make any money that month, I'm the one who had to figure out how to make payroll. And if a client, let's say a cl client leaves a message for you Friday afternoon. Oh, James, I think there's something serious we need to talk about. I guess you're not in. We'll talk Monday. Oh my God, the whole weekend, I'm like losing that client, but I don't know. And I'm trying to figure out like, how am I going to pay everybody? And, you know, and then you have to like go to events for client. You don't like the clients because they're usually mean to you. So it's not like they're your, your friends, but they're all the people you hang out with. And then your employees you know they're talking about you behind their your back. I mean, back then people weren't solopreneurs. It was like a real business. We had 40 employees. So you know there's some employees who hate you, and then there are some employees who are having sex with each other, and then they start hating each other, and you have to deal with that. And and then there's partnership. Every every business has some partnership disagreements. And I don't know. Here's the worst thing. I didn't know this when you start a business, but if you sell a business, you need your landlord to approve. Because, and I didn't, I, why would you need your landlord to approve? But it, it makes sense because he's going to have a new tenant, the guy who acquires your business. So he needs to approve. And if he doesn't approve, you can't sell your business. Like that's millions of dollars what? that is in your landlord's hands. Yeah. So Ugh. I didn't know that. And I had to like, my, and my landlord did not approve of me selling my first business. So I had to stand outside like his son's apartment building all night, every night until I saw his son. And I, I just like, Get, got down on my knees and begged him to get his dad to approve me, you know, selling this business. Did you actually get on your knees? Yeah, I did. And, and they were like, well, what company is buying your business? Cause he wanted to know what stock to buy. And I'm like, I can't say, but you know, it's an internet company. And, uh, he's like, well, okay, let us know as soon as you sell it. So we know what stocks to buy. And then they approved uh, of the deal. <laughs> wow. Hey, so you said at that time when you did lose everything, right? Uh, people weren't there for you on your way down. I think that, I think that's such a sad thing because I think all of us, and I, I guess most listeners will be thinking, oh, but I would be there for somebody when, you know, I'm that kind of guy, but then they weren't. So what, what does that say to you about humanity? What did you learn about humans from that? Yeah. And I don't think it's a new thing about humans, but just basically people like and admire successful people and they're scared of people who are on the way down because, hey, maybe some of that's going to rub off on me and or, or, or it makes them feel good. Like we live in a, you know, humans, primates are status oriented from from alpha to omega. And unfortunately, you know, it's not like we beat each other up to show who's alpha and omega, although I guess fortunately, because I would be the, certainly the omega there. But uh, so we don't like you know, you know, pound our chests and scream and, and whatever. We, we often use 
in many in much of society, we use money as the metric to decide status. And so people are very happy when you start losing money or when they sense you're losing money because then they're like, oh, this guy once had status over me. Now I have status over him. I'm going to talk about him behind his back. I'm not going to return his – he's not worthy of my time anymore. And maybe I could have asked for help a little bit more, but I was ashamed. I was on, I kept it a secret because I thought nobody would give me the time of day. And that ended up being true once it was pretty clear that I was – dead broke after having a lot. Were these friends of yours or like business associates? Both. You know, they, when you're, and, and maybe this is not true for everyone, but I think most people who start a business, they're, they're working 24 hours a day at it. Those are your friends. So I basically hired all my friends and then all my employees who weren't friends, they became my friends and clients became my friends. And I didn't really, and it, it, it get, friendship becomes distorted because I didn't even really like them that much, but they're my friends. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You get you get really confused, and it, it takes when you're a sale like uh, when you're when you start your own business, you you know you wear all hats, and you and this is true for journalism too. Like when you go and you're going and you're you're investigating something, you're a salesperson. You have to convince this person to essentially sell you for free their information, their stories, and so I had to. I was selling all the time. Whether you're selling to customers because hey, I could build your website you know, better than the next guy. You're selling to employees like, Hey, work, stay over the weekend so we can get this job done. It'll be great. Uh, you're selling to your partners. Like, don't worry, you know, I'll bring in these clients. Like you just do what you do and I'll do what I do. You're selling to the people who acquire your company. Obviously you're selling all the time. So if you forget what it means to not care what people think about you, like you're caring all the time, what everyone thinks about you and, and you lose you, you. I mean, I've started many businesses over the decades and you lose sight. Uh, you, you, you won't hear this from most entrepreneurs. Most entrepreneurs are like, man, I love the thrill. And, and then when you see like the, the revenues going up month over month, it's so great. And that's probably true for a lot of businesses, but for my businesses, which were a lot of very people oriented, it's just, you're selling all the time. And most of the time you're failing because, you know, it's like baseball, you know, in America, you, if you bat, 30%, you're, you're doing great. So most of the time you're not doing well, but, but it seems like you are. And then when you lose, when you lose that money again, on the way down, there is nobody at the bottom. There is nobody left. Nobody, not even, hopefully your wife is left, but that might not even be true. <laughs> I suppose it's an extension of just like day-to-day -day life, isn't it? I remember asking um, a, a linguist called Professor Lyra Boroditsky, what is language? What is what language is? And she said, manipulation. That's basically it. And there are, other, there are some other things we use language for, but for the most part, it's just manipulation and, and getting people to do things. That's what language is, getting them to see you a different way, getting them to help you with things. Um, and then you found that, you know, when you're running a business, you've got that whole hierarchy tribe thing going on, like, like times 10, right? Yeah, and, and look, She's, she's very right in an interesting way, if you think about it, because humans are the weakest primates, right? Like if you even, if you were to bump into a chimpanzee or a monkey, they seem even smaller than humans, but they will rip your arms out in a second. So humans are, are weak. We, we're really not that, we can't jump from tree to tree or anything like that. So we develop language and kind of a prefrontal cortex in order to be able to, you know, analyze threats more easily and and have you know humans are the first species that can scale destruction like we invented fire so that we could a single human can destroy an entire forest like no other species has been able to do that and that's because of language skills basically and and other skills of the prefrontal cortex which which no other primate has 
did you see that sort of news thing coming out? I think it was something like 20% of Americans think they could win in a fight with a chimpanzee. That is so funny. I bet you it's even more than 20%. But you know, that's also, that's like the, the standard thing where like nine out of 10 people think they're an above average driver. And like, there's that Dunning-Kruger bias, which is both good and bad, which we always think we're better than we are at whatever it is we're trying to succeed at. Yeah, I was at Darren Brown, the the mentalist magician guy the other day, uh, well, a few months ago now, actually. And he asked the audience, um, he said, like, put your hands up if you think you have an above average sense of humor. And every single person had their hands up. He said, well, that can't possibly be true because it's not like he's a comedian where like, you know, people who have better sense of humors would go to. He's a, he's a magician. He said, that can't be true that all of you are above average. Do you understand that? And I, you know, it's quite funny. We've all got those sort of thoughts. But you know, I completely have Dunning-Kruger bias about everything I do. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm a writer. I've written a, a, a whole bunch of books, but I would say the first five years I was writing, I'm afraid I tortured all of my friends. Like you have to read this story. You have to read this novel I wrote. And they so did not want to read it. It was, they were all awful. This is, you know, this is in, from 1990 to 1995. And, but the power of Dunning-Kruger bias is that you don't give up because you think, oh, everybody just doesn't understand my genius. <laughs> like, I, I know I'm good at this, even though you're not, even though that's where it takes like a lot of work to get good at something. So I thought I was good at investing in the beginning and I wasn't. I thought I was good at being a businessman. I wasn't. I thought I was good at, at writing. I wasn't. I've been, a, for seven years, I was a stand-up comedian and in the beginning, I thought, oh, I'm, I've got the greatest sense of humor. It took a long time to <laughs> get a single audience member to ever laugh at anything I said. Like, it was really hard work. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. 
you, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. How is how is it that you've got such a self-analytical mind? Like you're so clear of, of yourself like this and yet sort of not. Is it like a double think? Yeah, it's kind of like, because ultimately we're stupid. So, so you could think you're very smart and you could be smart about a lot of things, but ultimately we just know nothing. We know nothing about anything. Like, why would I think I was a good writer for five years when no, I had maybe, I just counted it the other day. I had over 2000 rejection letters because of course, since I was a genius, every novel I wrote, I would send out to 50 publishers and agents. Every short story I wrote, I would send out to a hundred literary journals. So I got well over 2000 rejection letters. And yet I still thought I was really good. And so, so, so maybe in retrospect, I mean, even right now I'm going through it. Like every time, you know, it's a pleasure in life here. It's a pleasure in life to master something, right? So when you started out as a journalist, you were just getting started. You wanted to have successes under your belt. And then as you got more and more successes under your belt, and now you have a successful YouTube channel and all these things, you feel good. Mastery of any topic is very, very pleasurable. That's one of the pleasures of life. It creates well-being. It's this feeling of, oh, I'm getting better at something. And and so that's why we we do this. And that's why I'm glad I have Dunning-Kruger bias heavily <laughs> because it's okay if I'm stupid about thinking I'm smart, is that eventually if I work hard enough, it, it'll happen. So is that that glad... That- that Gladwellian sort of 10,000 hours, that's always quoted. Then people say, oh, that's not actually true. My, uh, just in case anyone doesn't know, Mal- Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours, I think it is, to master anything if you do 10,000 hours. And some people say it's not right exactly. But do you think if you add Dunning-Kruger into the mix, it sort of makes a more complete algorithm? Uh, yes and no, because I think what the 10,000 hour rule does, and, and by the way, there, you're right, there's controversy around it. But what the 10,000 hour rule does is it allows you to accept that you're not good in the first 100 hours or the first 1000 hours. Um, and I've spoken to Anders Ericsson, who's the real developer of the 10,000 hour rule. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, it just borrowed it from him, but Anders Ericsson did the research that shows 10,000 hours. I actually was part of that initial research back in 1992. Um, he did a lot of that research, uh, in a domain that I am a master of, which is chess. So a lot of the tests were done on chess players. I was one of the chess players he tested on. And, but, but here's the thing about the 10,000-hour rule. It's really about who's going to be the best in the world. So in, a, in the research on violinists, for instance, the violinists who put in 10,000 hours became the best in the world. The violinists who've only put in 4,000 hours 
they were like the third chair of a symphony or an orchestra, not the first chair. But okay, they're 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 not the best in the world, but they're better than everyone else <laughs> except the best in the world. And they didn't put in ten thousand hours. So here's a, chess is a great example, you know. Or or here 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 here's where I'm going to get to is that basically a few hundred hours of work on something will get you to be in the top one percent of whatever field you want to be in the top 1% of. Now, most people will not know the difference between the top 1% of something or or the top 10 in the world of something. So I'm a chess master as an example. If I were to play you, and if you're not a chess master, I'm going to win. But if you were to play a chess grandmaster who's a couple levels higher than me, you would not know the difference between him and me. And now there's a billion people in the world or 600 million people in the world, supposedly, who play chess more than once a month. And I mean, 100 million people are signed up for chess.com, for instance, which is an online site for playing chess. So for, for, for if I'm in the top 1% or even one-tenth of 1%, the top, top players will crush me, but nobody else in the world will. And that's all I need to be kind of a master of something. You don't need the, t- I don't want to be the best in the world at any of these things. I want to get good enough that I could appreciate what I'm doing and I can enjoy it. And, and then other people, and I get status. So chess is a great thing where, uh, I was once in a taxi cab and we were just chatting and the guy, the cab driver said he plays chess. And I was thinking, Oh, that's nice. Do you play casually or whatever? And he says, no, I was the national champion of Turkey. And then I moved here and I'm like, Oh, what's your ranking? And he was an international master, which is like the ranking higher than, than me. And I asked him, well, how long did it take you to go from master level to international master? And he's like, Oh my God, it took five years of eight hours a day of, of studying five extra years. And, you know, I was glad I didn't do that because being a chess master, people confuse that with being intelligent, which is, that's a, the wrong conclusion, but it got me into college. It got me into graduate school. It got me my first major job. It helped me raise money for a hedge fund and helped me, you know, sell a company because people associate chess mastery with intelligence. Wow. That's genius. You know, it, it reminds me a lot of, um, because, you know, I do my languages. I learned five languages in my 20s in a very similar way of just hours and hours and hours of doing it. And I found a very similar thing that we got to a point, uh, like my, my fiance and I living in, say, Berlin, where our German was good enough for what we wanted. And we knew that to get that extra percent is going to be a lot of work. That's going to be years and years and years of training. And we just didn't need that anymore. But it's a similar thing where it doesn't take intelligent people. It takes people who've got the motivation and time and who want to keep doing it. Um, and it also looks good on your CV, doesn't it? Right. And, and look, for you in languages, you also understood what the learning curve looked like. So it's, it's, it takes 10,000 hours, let's say, to be at the all the way at the end. But, but don't forget, in the learning curve, it looks like an S. So the top is very, very flat for... It's just, you, you barely know it's sloping upwards. And that, that's what takes 9,000 of the 10,000 hours. But if you just get to the <laughs> top of, of the, the S before the, you know, before the learning curve flattens, you're just as, you're better than everyone else in the world, except for the people who are professionally doing it. And, oh my God, you speak five languages. That's incredible. You're incredible. Give me a company. Yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> so my argument is, I call it the, hundred experiment rule, which is that forget 10,000 hours. If you want to master something, do a hundred experiments of learning something and you're going to get proficient enough that you're probably in the top 1%. 
So maybe it's 200 experiments. So if, if you want to be like a successful stand-up comedian, for instance, you know, study different comedians, mimic their styles, try mimicking their styles on stage a couple hundred times, and you're going to be in the top 1% of, of all comedians, but you won't be the best at all. You won't be, you know, Chris Rock, you'll, who's infinitely better than you. You'll be good enough to be better than everyone else who hasn't done, you know, a few hundred hours of it. Which is which is the top one percent? People people really like um, your ideas and things. And one of the things you did when you were in those down times or the, the the depressing times was to write ten ideas a day. Tell me a bit about that, and because I know you've now got this website as well where people put up their own ten ideas a day kind of thing. Yeah. So I was dead broke. By the way, I lived a block away from nine eleven, like the twin towers, and I w- had breakfast there the day of, and I was leaving, um, the, the world trade center and my business partner and I, my business partner, we were, I lived right on the street where the plane went down. So my business partner turns to me and says, Oh, is the president coming into town today? And I'm like, no, why? And he said, well, look at that. And then zoom, like just right. (sighs) Essentially what felt like right over our heads, we saw the plane go right into, like, I had never seen a, nobody has ever seen a plane crash before, but I saw this with my eyes and it was a horrible day for every but involved. I had the least of it, but I lived right next door and just the after effect in the community was hard as well. And so here I was broke and I had already had my house for sale because I was, I was dead broke. I couldn't play the mortgage anymore. And now, you know, this horrible event happened. It was much worse for everyone else than me, but it took another almost a year and several months before I could sell this house. So I honestly couldn't handle it. I, I thought if I ran out of money, I was worthless and in in a very life living sense. So I was, I was constantly searching, how can I kill myself without hurting, without it hurting? I didn't want to have it hurt. Like people who hang themselves are, it hurts when you do that. I don't want to do that. And if you shoot yourself in the head, and I'm sorry to be so grim, when you shoot yourself in the head, it's, it's possible to miss and you could just rip up your head and be in a kind of a weird sort of coma forever. And and I didn't know, and I had this life insurance policy. I thought my kids who were babies would be better off with the life insurance policy than with this worthless father that I was. And so I would, I would take these, I had nothing to do. I would take these long walks all day and just constantly figure out like how to survive or, or not. Like I couldn't figure it out. And one day, for some reason, I wandered into this restaurant supply store and it looked very pretty to me, these waiter's pads. So I bought a box of waiter's pads for some reason. Uh, notepads. Yeah, yeah. They were, but like, they were waiter's notepads. They were like, had blue and they were small. So you couldn't write like a whole novel in them or anything. They're just, they're just meant, made for bullet points. And I started writing, I started going to cafes and every morning I'd read some books and then I would write down 10 ideas a day. Not for anything, but just to practice. Like I wrote 10 ideas for books. Oh, here's a book idea, like 10 ideas for chapters of that book. 10 ideas for articles I could write. And, and on and on, but I wasn't doing anything with it. And, but I, what I realized after a few weeks is that I was excited all of a sudden for the first time in years to get out of bed and write ideas down. And then suddenly I started having ideas. Oh, I want to do this idea. And, and, and it created opportunities for me. Like I was excited. So I wrote down, oh, here's 10 people I would like to email. So I would email them. Nobody would respond. But then I would think of for each one, 10 ideas for each person. And then I would email them the ideas I had for them. And I would say, you don't have to respond. 
here's these ideas for free. I just enjoy doing this. And then people started to respond because you were giving. And one, per, one person I wrote, here's 10 ideas for articles you should write. And he said, he wrote back right away. He said, why don't you write them for me? And so he, so I start, that started my writing career. Another person I wrote, here's 10 ideas for hedge, for strategies you should use for your hedge fund. And he wrote back and said, let's meet. Maybe you should do them. And so I kind of started entire careers from scratch, just from writing 10 ideas a day. And I've been doing it. I've been trying to do it ever since. Like sometimes when I've gotten depressed or broke since then, I would forget or I would be morose or or whatever. But it's really worked. Like because of writing these ideas and often sending them to people, I've I've visited or consulted for Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Quora, uh, so many companies. Like every day to this day, like today it happened as well. And um, and then more recently, and this is twenty years later, almost exactly twenty years later. More recently, um, so many people have been asking me, "Hey, did you ever make a website to track your ideas?" And I'm like, "No, no, it doesn't matter about tracking ideas. I'm just trying to exercise." the idea muscle. I don't keep track of them. But finally I did it. And so people could write their idea lists and they can share them with each other and they could search other people's idea lists. And a whole community's developed around it. Like people comment on each other, they've made friends, they follow each other. And it's a really healthy community because these people are getting, literally I'm watching, they're getting more creative every day with their lists. And now we hooked up an AI engine to it. So the AI could help out a little bit. And it's, it's neat seeing it developed. I don't necessarily say it's a business. It's just a website I've made and, but it's really coming along nicely. There's like 50,000 unique readers a month and there's over 12,000 idealists on there. And it's just been a few months that we've, that we've kind of been in beta. It's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. My, my very first list that I wanted to implement on, I had, I, I had an idea for a book, which I never wrote, which is uh, how to beat your friends and family at every game in the universe. And the idea is, is that any game you could think of, there's usually one or two tips that, could make could put someone in the top 1%. Not the best, but the top 1%. Like Monopoly is an example. If people say if if I ask you what property should you buy at Monopoly, what would you say? Uh what do you ha- is it the London one you you'd know of? Uh well let's say the colors are the colors are the same between London and the US. I don't I don't remember because I haven't played in years, but it would be something like Mayfair. It would be what, are they blue? I feel like they're blue. Yeah, yeah, the the blue ones. Yeah, so that's what people answer and actually it's the orange ones. Uh, that are the, that, that if you want to win a monopoly, just buy the orange property, do whatever you can to get the orange properties because there's, they're roughly seven away from jail and seven is the most common dice roll. And jail is the square that you're on the most because you get to jail through the community cards and, you know, and so on. But James, this reminds me in the, in the the UK version of the office, there's a character Gareth. I can't remember what, I think it might be Dwight in the US one. And, uh, he tries to get a, a, a woman to play top trunks, a card game of comparing like to, uh, it's like whoever's got the better car or whatever it is. And he just says like, I've memorized every single one. You cannot win. It will be impossible, but it will still be fun. You know, is it fun playing games with you, with the family and stuff? Because too much strategy takes away that sort of chance that that makes it fun. Yeah, a lot, um, I've never I've never been in a relationship where anybody wanted to play me. You have to when when you <laughs> when you love games, you kind of have to play someone else who loves games and can appreciate that you're playing to kill someone, not playing to have fun. Man, my 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 fiance would love you because um, she should have someone to play Baraco with very competitively. You ever played Baraco? It's like Rummy Cub kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Argentine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like uh, uh, 
I've played it in Argentina with my ex-wife who was Argentinian and we would get very competitive and like I would really study the game. But gin rummy in the United States is a very competitive game and very a lot of money changes hands. So I'm, I, I, if I could do nothing, I would play just games all the time. <laughs> would, what, what about going back to the ideas, right? So um, most people do zero ideas a day. And so I gather, I, I get the impression you, you'd want people to start coming up with 10 ideas a day, but they don't all have brains that work like yours. You've got a very quick and big brain. Most, I, don't, I wouldn't know where to start with an idea. No, but that's the whole point is that the idea muscle is a muscle. And if you, like, let's say you, you hit, had a bicycle accident. This happened to Stephen King, the writer. So he had a bicycle accident and he, he was in bed for two weeks, three weeks afterwards recovering. And he had trouble walking afterwards because your, your muscles atrophy so fast. But even more interestingly, he had trouble writing afterwards. His writing muscle was, had atrophied in just two or three weeks. And your idea muscle will also atrophy and everybody has an idea muscle that's atrophied. So the writing the 10 ideas a day actually builds up that muscle and you become in the top 1% of people who have good ideas or, or lots of ideas. So you're not going to always have good ideas, but you'll at least have lots of ideas. And it's a, ideas are a quantity game because most ideas are bad, but you just have to practice having them. And I mean, there's a famous ad executive. He told all his employees, um, I need an idea when I come back for lunch for this new client. And none of them had any ideas. So he left again and he said, I need 20 ideas from each of you. And they all had 20 ideas when he got back. So it's a, it's a quantity game, but you, you, by writing 10 ideas a day, you practice coming up with lots of ideas. Most ideas I have are really bad, but every now and then there'll be yeah. a good one. If you were emailing me, and I don't want to put you on the spot, so I won't give you 10, but what, what one idea would you, would you give to me? Well, you, you like investigating scandalous things, right? So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, and, but, but you kind of go into, you do a lot of like sex crime stuff, a lot of like the sort of, um, he headline stuff with like, Oh, here's a fake psychic. Here's a fake medical healer. And those are all very interesting and powerful. I would look for you into, I would give you like 10 types of financial scams or scandals that are happening right now that you can uncover and like millions of dollars are involved. So it affects lots of people. So, I mean, Wall Street is just filled with financial crimes right now. And, you know, then you have the whole crypto world. And I'm a fan of, of crypto and Bitcoin, but because it's the, it's the Wild West of, of the financial world, there are so many scams and there's such an underworld of people doing crypto scams that I would, I would dig around a little bit more into those. And now you look, um, even in, I will bring up chess again, there's a big scandal in um, chess cheating. So like somebody is being accused of, somebody famous is being accused of cheating at, at chess. So I, for, if I were you, I would go play, having, not having any real knowledge of chess, I would go and cheat. And if I were you, I would cheat in a chess tournament, describe <laughs> what you did and how you got away with it. And I guarantee right. you a million readers. Cause again, 90 million people on chess.com and they are all following this chess. It's trending in, on Twitter right now, chess drama. Cause it's such a big scandal. Was this something to do with like anal insertion? Yeah, that was somebody made a joke on that, and then Elon Musk retweeted it. So it's not really ah. that, but it's this—it's the exact. <laughs> it is the same scandal. It is the same scandal. It's so funny because I don't because I don't know. Then so that's in my head what's happened now. I've just imagined the joke has turned into like what I really think now. Yeah, because the Guardian wrote an article about somebody cheating uh, using <laughs> anal beads, and but that's because Elon Musk retweeted this one joke. But that is the scandal, and, and it's, it's gotten into the mainstream. So 
I would see, and every, but the big question has is how can someone actually cheat? Well, that's, I, that's a story I would definitely get a lot of coverage is if you actually show you have zero knowledge and then you go and win a tournament and no one detects that you were cheating. Darren Brown did it. Did you see that Darren Brown thing? I know I no. keep going on about Darren Brown. He did this thing where he plays against, I think it's like 11 uh, grandmasters at the same time uh, and he beats them all. Or, or something like that. And he obviously had a trick to doing it. You, got, you would love this. It's on YouTube. You can see that. I can't remember exactly how it was. I think I, know, I think I know what he did. I think he played different colors with each one. So the first Grandmaster would make a move. And then that's what he played for the second Grandmaster. That was it. So he won half of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you would have known immediately what he was doing, but everyone else was like, what? Usually in those exhibitions, you play the same color on every board. You don't reverse colors because then you could do that. It, it looks really impressive. But yeah, he explained it afterwards. He was like, I just used the, the last person's move on the next one and so on. So he, he, like, yeah, he won half of the games, which looked pretty insane. But yeah, that's, he couldn't have done it just against one person, for example. He'd have um, lost. Speaking of fight, I think that's a great idea what you're saying. And I think it's one of your strengths as well. Is that I, I guess I've sort of... Uh, uh, subconsciously split the world into sort of human story stuff and then financey businessy stuff. And I'm just like a total amateur with the financey businessy stuff. But I think you're really interested in both. I think that's why people warm to the kind, you know, to your work and everything. Um, but I would like to do that. But also, you met Bernie Madoff, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Bernie, Bernie Madoff, yeah, is the biggest Ponzi scheme, financial scandal ever. And I mean, as you know, the problem with financial, the problem with any scandal is that it crowds out legitimate people. Like, let's say someone says they're a medical healer and they can heal people by touch. Well, that might drive the doctor who lives next door out of business because everyone's going to the medical healer thinking they're going to get cured and it's easy instead of going to the doctor who's suggesting surgery and the doctor who's legitimate might go out of business because he, he has no customers. And so this is even doubly so in financial scandals. So, so one, one time I was running a hedge fund and I had by this point made a serious study of investing because I had lost so much investing that I, I for years I studied it, how to be a better investor and, and maybe I got good and I was starting to have good returns and people were giving me money to invest. And uh, uh, my next door neighbor says, why don't you come in and meet my boss? He runs a, a big hedge fund. So I go in um, to a famous building in New York City called the Lipstick Building. I go in and I get the tour and... Uh, you know, his, my friend's boss sits me down and says, so James, love talking to you. You seem really smart. What can I do for you? And I say, I would love it if you invested some of your hedge funds money with my hedge fund, because it's a way for you to diversify. And he said, listen, I don't, you could have a job here. He offered me a job. You could have a job here anytime you want. I like you. You seem smart. You could bring it all in-house, but I can't let my money go out. I don't know what you're doing with the money. It could be something scandalous. I have no idea. I have no idea to check. And last thing we need here is to see the name Bernard Madoff Securities LLC on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And meanwhile, he was stealing, this is the guy I was talking about, he was stealing $60 billion. And so I left his building thinking, man, how am I ever going to compete with guys like this? Like, And I literally started the process of shutting off my hedge fund because I felt like just couldn't compete with people like that. Because at the time, everyone thought he was a winner, like he was doing, doing great. As I was leaving his building, other hedge fund managers were calling me, how can we get money with Bernie Madoff? He won't take our money. And all these people later denied calling me, but I know they called me because why would I make that up? And 
but it was it was depressing. And then there was, there was another guy I visited too. His name was Ken Starr, um, and he was running a hedge fund, and he had a lot of professional athletes as his clients. And I said, why don't you invest some money with me to diversify? And he's like, why would I invest with you? I'm doing better than you. And look, here's a picture, autographed picture of me with Derek Jeter. Like, why would I invest money with you? And so he, he's in both of these guys, Bernie Madoff and this guy, Ken Starr, are in jail now. But at the time, everyone thought they were great. So I literally, I feel like I was run out of business by scandals that nobody knew about. So you're pretty pissed off. It's hard. Yeah. But you know, I'm glad I got out of that business, but there, scandals are everywhere. Here, here's an example. I invested once with a hedge fund and it turns out later that the guy personally stole $10 million out of his hedge fund. And, but there was no real, a lot of this is the problem with wall street is that there are no real laws. You think there are laws, but there's so much gray area and so many loopholes that it's really hard to convict somebody if they're sophisticated. So this guy stole $10 million. The sec caught him. The sec is the regulatory group in the United States that catches financial criminals. The sec caught him and he, and, but they knew they couldn't convict him. So he literally sent them $50,000 as a penalty and he completely disappeared. Like no social media. I have no idea where he is. There's no way to contact him. He has 10 million extra dollars wow. and that's it. That's insane, isn't it? It's insane. And that happens all the time. It happens every day. Hey, I should ask you now, actually, because you're, you're someone who knows this stuff. Patreon, you know Patreon? Yeah. Right. They uh, uh, transfer. They're supposed to, like my payout from last week didn't work. And I've been emailing them all week and they just say, oh, it's a bug or something. And I've said like, well, shouldn't you just pay me from somewhere? And I think, I think Patreon, I might be completely wrong here, but I think they're going to go bust or something and they're withholding people's money. That could be. That would be pretty scary. I mean, I would look at when was the last time they were funded by venture capitalists because probably a lot of the payout actually comes from the venture capitalists indirectly through Patreon. Like think about think about Uber as a simpler example. When you pay for a ride, you're paying a pretty cheap price and that's because Uber for many years for over a decade was really subsidizing all the rides by the billions and billions of dollars that venture capitalists had given them. But now that they're a public company, there are no more venture capitalists. So Uber is can't show a profit and they're going to have to eventually either raise prices or pay drivers less, which neither can happen or they'll go out of business. So Patreon could be in a similar situation where maybe they're having trouble getting money from venture capitalists and maybe their core business is not really profitable. So eventually it'll turn into a Ponzi scheme where they, they can't raise any more money and they can't pay. I mean, let me just Google when, when was the last time Patreon? Because uh, And they just seem so flippant in their responses to me. And I'm like, this is over like a thousand pounds, which to someone my sort of age and stage of my career, that's a lot of money for paying bills and stuff. And they're just like, uh, well, as we've told you, we're working to fix the bug. And it's like, what bug is this? Come on, I'm not. So I've been getting quite aggressive and saying I'm going to get, get like legal, seek legal recourse or something. Yeah, they're, so the last time they raised money was... In, was over a year, about a year ago and altogether, but I don't know how much money. And it was, it's weird. It, it, it doesn't, it looks like the, to be honest, it looks to me like the CEO and other top people cashed out and the money didn't go into the company, but altogether they've raised almost half a billion dollars, like $400 million. So that's a lot of money and they, they should have money unless they've been stealing it. And I, I bet you it'll be fine. Okay. Well, thank you. I'll try and stay calm. <laughs> yeah, stay, stay, stay yeah. calm because 
Uh, well, also, did you check Twitter? Are people complaining about Patreon? Uh, there, there wasn't anything yet, but I thought that might be the same reason as me because I felt like that's a card that I'm holding back. Like, if, if you don't pay me by this time, I'm going to go public with this shit, you know? Oh, my God. When I search hashtag Patreon on Twitter... It's all porn. Oh, oh, right. Okay, well, there's two things. That's because of like the, uh, what's it called, OnlyFans. I can see, like, it's weird to look at a, an established man like you, James, and know that your eyes are looking at pornography as you smile into the camera. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of pornography. I was just shocked that, uh, uh, you know, Patreon, I didn't know that was like where, that's like in, when Yahoo first started in 1997 yeah. or 1996, their main source of revenues was pornography. No one really knows that. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. You know who I want to I, I want to set you up with actually for your podcast if you're interested, uh, and I can we can maybe edit this bit out in case you don't want to talk to him. But Justin Hall, do you know who he is? Yeah. So he he's like got the title as the first ever blogger, uh, Links.net. It was called back in like ninety two, ninety three, and his his story is just like unbelievable and he also had like porn on his website and it was the first time there was like the first dick pics and it was his uh but it's because he had an infection and he put it it's like the second ever episode i did was with him oh yeah i'd love to talk to him i mean because i because i uh, back in i don't want to say i had the first blog but i definitely had what could be now considered a blog back in at least 93 94 and then um i essentially had a podcast in 96 in 97. Ooh, wow. First podcaster. Yeah, well, I never made that claim, but uh, for HBO, I did a project where I would go out on like a Tuesday or Wednesday night at three in the morning, and I would interview, like, why would someone be out at three in the morning on a Wednesday night? Saturday night, I get it, but a Wednesday night, you're probably up to no good if you're out at three in the morning, and that's what it <laughs> turned out to be. Like, everybody I interviewed was up to no good, and I did this for two and a half years, probably interviewed close to three or 4,000 people. Did that get big, that show? Um, it wasn't a TV show. It was a web show, although I did shoot a pilot as a TV show. And yeah, it got big as a website. Like it was featured in magazines and, and you know, I had, such, I had, it was the funnest time of my life really because I was not doing it for money. I was just doing it to get great entertainment. And, 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 and I was learning like, what were people up to at three in the morning? I had never been out at Tuesday night at 3 a.m. So it was, it was fascinating. And I got my, I guess, I guess 
I got interviewing skills during that. Man, uh, you're, what you're saying is very similar to Justin Hall, the, that first blogger guy. He's, he's in California now, I think, but he's it's very similar. But also, like, that's an amazing idea for a show. I love that. And it's, now that's quite popularized because there's those two guys, I've forgotten their names, and they're, quite, they're linked. I always forget the names. American guys who've got like a new, one of the, one's got a show called The Rehearsal. Oh, uh, Nathan Felder. Yeah, and he's got someone else linked to him, but I can't remember. He is, he's a genius. I love his stuff. And then Dave Attell, uh, another comedian, had a show called Insomnia for a while on Comedy Central. Right, okay. And John, Wins- John Wilson. Oh, okay, I don't know him. But Nathan Fielder, man, that guy is a genius. He had a show, Nathan, for you, and now he's doing the rehearsal. That's right. Amazing stuff. I, I, I feel like that 3 a.m. thing's amazing. And also, that's what I was saying before about you being sort of interested in the financial business stuff, but also the human, because that's really, really about the human stuff. And, you know, what was, what was some of the, what were they up to, these people? Uh, it was so funny, like, like no matter what, let's say I interviewed 20 people on a typical night, at least one person would be a dominatrix. Like no matter what, I, somebody was on their way to a dominatrix appointment. And wow. a lot of times people were cheating on spouses. A lot of times people were, you know, in the middle of drug deals or, or here's another thing, you know, in, if you're bailed out of jail, like if you're going to, if you were arrested and you were bailed out, you, you have to be released no matter what time of the day it is. So even at three in the morning, there was a bus going from this one bus stop in New York City to Rikers Island, which was a jail right outside of New York City. And it was every hour taking people, like I, w- I would ride the bus. So I'd interview the family, going to bail out their kids. And then on the way back, the kids coming back to the stop. And then at the stop, who of course is at the stop? Well, it's pimps, prostitutes, and drug dealers because their customers are coming home. And so it was a full, you know, range of people. Plus the bus driver has seen everything, been there, done that. So I interviewed him and that was shot for the pilot actually, because we we did it as a pilot for HBO as well. Man, I love that. I want you to bring that back, but you you just do so many different things. Um, Stand-up comedy, (laughs) like you've got your own club, right? I mean, how do you get that, that beyond... Anything you've done, that's the one where I don't know how you can get up in front of a bunch of people and make jokes and like, what if they don't laugh? Did they ever not? Did they ever not laugh when you started? Sure, uh, all the time. <laughs> and and by the way, I was you know in New York City is great because I'm going up side by side with some of the world's most famous comedians. Sometimes they don't laugh at the most famous comedians in the world. So you know, it's every audience is different. And so what? Even if you even if you have a sense of humor, even if you have great material every audience is different. So what you get good at when you're getting good at stand-up is not necessarily joke writing, which is, but that that's certainly a part of it, but maybe it's 10 to 20%. But how you are on stage, you have to be really good on stage and you have to learn how to recognize what kind of audience you have. You can't serve sushi to an audience that wants barbecue. You have to know, you have to see who, who the, you get really good at seeing who your audience is. And, and then you get really good at analyzing well, this club has, the ceilings are very high, so the laughter is not going to echo as quickly. Or these people are seated too far apart, so you have to figure out how to get them sitting closer to each other. And there's all sorts of techniques and skills that I never thought was part of stand-up. And so, yeah, and and then part of it too is when they're silent, what do you do? Are you going to just do the next five minutes with them being silent? You have to have a set of tools to deal with when they're silent. And But sometimes you just can't scrape you know, blood from a stone or whatever the expression is. And it's just, it's just a dead audience, but sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's the best feeling in the world. 
Did you ever just like walk off because it wasn't working? One time I got booed off, yes. <laughs> oh, man. I suppose once you, I suppose that's character building, isn't it? Because like once that's happened, it's like the the lowest, you, you know, okay, let's do it again. What's, I've experienced that and I'm okay. You would think, and I always would think. <laughs> but I, sometimes I really, l- let me ask you advice. Like sometimes I think I'm just like an idiot because I'm always doing these things where I could feel incredible pain upon loss. So let's say I bomb once. I could say, oh, at comedy, I could say, okay, well, that happens occasionally. But what if it's like three times in a row? Then I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, I, I can't sleep at night. Like, something really bad is happening. Like, here's this activity I love beyond anything else, and I'm just failing at it somehow. Something, I feel like something's wrong with my brain. Or like more recently, you know, I mentioned before, I, I, when I was younger, I achieved the rank of chess master, which is a rank when you play a lot and you play well. And now I'm playing, after a 25-year break, I'm playing again, and it is hard. Like the chess world has changed after 25 years, and and it is painful. Like to try to get back to where I was. Sometimes it's amazing, and sometimes it's beautiful. But you know, I wish I trimmed bonsai trees or something like that. Where I doubt it's as painful to get good at a hobby like that. Like, why do you think someone just inflicts punishment on themselves like this. Well, um, to an extent, there's that... uh, I had Paul Bloom on, Professor Paul Bloom, and he's got a book called The Sweet Spot, Why We Enjoy Suffering. I think it's called something like that. Uh, And a lot of the time, he he says we like suffering just because of the contrast. Like, so much of human experience is contrast. I think think they say human experience. Like, somebody... I don't know how they've done this. They've put a number on, like, the time, the duration of human experience, and it's two seconds. That's what an experience is. It's two seconds long. And how good that experience is, is often how well it contrasts to the two seconds before. And I guess that makes sense evolutionarily because it makes you always want to have, you know, you're always striving to have a better two seconds. Uh, But it's why we sort of engage in a lot of suffering, uh, like spicy food. He uses that as as an example, or like really hot baths, uh, because the next experience two seconds later is going to be a bit of a relief compared to the initial two seconds. So maybe you're doing it for for that reason. You're, You're experiencing all extremes and stuff. I think that's definitely true. I think it's a huge, like if you really love doing something and you do it, it's a huge, A, it's a great dopamine hit to just engage in it. Like if I'm about to go up on stage, it's, you get this huge dopamine rush. And I'm talking about in my stand-up comedy. Or if I'm about to start a game in a tournament, uh, it's this huge dopamine rush. And then when you're winning, it's even a bigger dopamine rush. And then after you win, it's a, you get the serotonin like, oh, day well done. Now I could sleep, I could rest, I'll have pleasant dreams. But if you lose, you just spent four hours with nothing but yourself and your thoughts and the board. You can't talk to anybody. It's just you and your thoughts. And then you, and you focusing so much and then you lose. And what did I, what did I just spend that four hours doing? Like now I hate myself and I'm not going to sleep. And, but then you go back the next day because, oh, I was just, I was just off that day. Now I'm going to go and really play. And you never stop. Well, it's a bit of um, almost OCD to an extent, I'd say. You might have, and I have that feeling as well, you're sort of setting it right. You got the wrong yesterday, so you've got to keep playing. It's like you're, you're gambling, right? You're, you keep going until you get it. Yeah. It's totally like that. It's totally like that. And even like day trading. So I started off investing, when I was professionally investing, I started off as a day trader. And that's totally like, oh my gosh, I can make $1,000 in five minutes and then I'm done for the day. And 
Uh, but then when you lose, it's like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I just, if I lose a thousand dollars every day, I'm going to be broke. And, uh, uh, like you extend it out into the future, your loss, because you're now you're never going to win and you just go to the worst case scenario. And I don't know. It's just, I always set myself up for too much pain, I think. And then I take, you know, it's dangerous to take risks. I think you have to really, really suffer to be able to really, really live and really be happy and experience that kind of joy and elation. There's definitely personality, just I'm, I'm speaking anecdotally, there are definitely personality types, again, who are more impulsive, like you might be. Uh, my best friend is like that, very impulsive, and he probably has more highs, uh, higher highs and lower lows. And I think I, to an extent, also try to, to get some of that. Yeah, you go for ex- you, I mean, you go for very extreme experiences. So like what's a down point for you? The other day I was walking in the high street and I saw this statue and it had a um I, I said to my girlfriend like oh god look at the nose on that statue because it's not usual that they build a, a statue with a huge nose. And as I got a little bit closer I, I quickly realized it was a person who was dressed as a statue and I had said that very loudly and I felt terrible. Couldn't sleep. Uh, it's still haunting my 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 dreams because the guy heard, but he had to stay still. But he definitely heard, and I'd gone look at the nose on him. You don't usually expect that. What a huge nose! And it's the kind of thing I would never say. I would never say that to someone because I thought it was a statue, and that's haunted me for days. That's so funny because it's it's really that's something you feel shame about, but it's not like something where you you felt like lost. you lost status in a in a hierarchy that you. Uh, trust. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so like, like for instance, let's say you're going for a story and you, you have what you think is a great story and everyone rejects you. I have a feeling you still have confidence that this is a good story because now you can choose yourself and, and put it on YouTube and let the audience decide. Yeah. Well, you know, you've, you've written a lot about failing and, and, and how you need to fail and stuff like that. And I totally agree. And it's so funny. And I've said this before, you, you often watch these sort of celebrities on TV, whether it's the Beatles or JK Rowling or Oasis. And they talk about like, Hey, you know, that our album was actually rejected six times before it went uh, viral or whatever it is. And you're like, I got rejected like 600 times before breakfast this morning. Like, I don't want to hear about Oasis getting there out or some idiot didn't choose their album. I've been rejected six thousand times so i think i've got the same thing of you of like screw it just keep going just keep going just keep going and thousands and thousands of rejections so so yeah that exorcist film took two years to sell of just pushing and pushing and pushing and then i made another film about um someone someone called the crazy baby lady in argentina and i thought this is a better film than the last one but that's also a sort of confirmation bias right you always want to feel every even the singers in their 50s they always say oh this is this album's my best one yet you have to feel that way uh so maybe it wasn't but I spent uh, four years trying to sell it, just sending email after email, getting all these things on LinkedIn so you can find out the email addresses of like assistants. And, you know, just I'm just like on the phone to some receptionist at your HBO who's like, this is like the wrong, I don't know, I, you know? Uh, so that was painful. Um, re- yeah, I guess painful, but the way that I work through that is to just not stop long enough. And, and every time I got a new email that was like a new rejection, all I did was open the email and you'd quickly scan for the word, unfortunately. And you know it's going to be somewhere in like the fourth or fifth line or maybe even the second or third, unfortunately. And as soon as I see that, it's like I, I close it and my girlfriend knows like I'm unresponsive for, uh, you know, I'm still nice and polite, but I'm unresponsive for like the next hour because I'm immediately finding like four more people to send emails to so that instead of the dis- disappointment my head is going, God, I'm excited about those four people who are you know, probably going to reject me. Right. 
you're 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 restoring the dopamine by by doing that. Like you're at this dopamine level, like, oh, they might accept me. Then you get this rejection, but then so the cortisol kicks in, the stress kicks in, but then you restore the dopamine by finding new opportunities, new new branches to find food on. And uh, uh you know, I guess it's the same with me. Like when I let's just take it as an example right now, when I lose um at a chess game in a tournament, I'll first be very, very upset, like nobody could talk to me. And but then uh, a, I'll say to myself, well, this is a good opportunity for me to study my loss so I don't make the same mistakes twice, so I'll get better. So I, I, I figure, oh, you could only learn from your losses, really. So I, 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 it, I, it means I have good material now to study to get better. And, and then there's always the hope for, for the next time. But also alongside of that, you get, I get into very bad habits when I start to feel miserable about whether it's a business or investing or writing or comedy or whatever it is I'm pursuing. And so you have to, I kind of have to have a plan in place in advance for, okay, I lost. That means I've got to now exercise to restore kind of the, the healthy hormones or whatever in my body. And I've got to be creative. I write my 10 ideas a day, no matter what. And so when you're creative, that makes you excited about things. I've got to, um, I always make sure I check the box on, I've got to make some emotional connection with someone, like call a friend I haven't spoken to, call my kids and have a good conversation. Um, and then I finally I have to do something, let's call it semi-spiritual, like maybe some sort of meditation or kind of surrender that, oh, this is not really that important in the larger scheme of things. Thank God, you know, my family's healthy and I'm just going to surrender the result, the outcomes and enjoy the process. So I always make sure... I have that plan uh, in place of physical, emotional, creative, spiritual that I'm going to do when things start to dip because otherwise things could spiral out of control and I'll get depressed. Yeah, you've got to have those coping mechanisms. I think you got to you got to do that. Hey, um, we're we're out of time. I want to. I've got so I got through like half the questions. We got to do like a follow up soon, right? I, sure. Let's do that and vice versa. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll trade again. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 